And Jesus said to them, Why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you to be here with us this morning, and we trust that you are here with us in this place. May my words be your words, and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So I wanted to talk about this passage from Luke that we have before us this morning because it is such a unique one. Luke stands alone here. Matthew begins his gospel, his story of the life of Jesus with his birth in Bethlehem, the visit of the wise men, the trip to Egypt to escape the slaughter of the innocents, and then the return home. And then, bam, Matthew is right into John the Baptist coming to prepare the way for Jesus as he begins his public ministry 30 years later. Mark and John are even more abrupt, beginning the action with John the Baptist right from the start, skipping even the story of Jesus' birth. Now, Luke, like Matthew, does tell the birth story. Indeed, it's Luke's version that I think most people are most familiar with. It's the one that Linus quotes in a Charlie Brown Christmas, after all. But Luke is the only gospel that gives us any hint at all about what he refers to in our little story as the boy Jesus. In fact, Luke records the only words we have from Jesus before he's 30 years old. Why were you searching for me? He asks his worried parents. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? That's it. That's the complete transcript, all the red letters of the Savior of the world until he's baptized by John in the Jordan, sent into the wilderness to be tempted and begins calling his disciples at the beginning of his public ministry. He was, of course, a child and then a boy and then a teenager and then a young man. But we don't know anything about that. All we know is Why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, when these verses about Jesus in the temple are brought up at all, it's usually because of the oddity of Luke chapter 2, verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in years and in divine and human favor. What does this mean? At first blush, it seems like a completely normal thing to include, especially if your plan is like Luke's, which is to skip over a huge chunk of the life of your subject, because people, after all, do grow in wisdom and in years. But of course, Jesus isn't just some person. Some have wondered, therefore, what this means about the incarnation. Was the young Jesus something less than God? Was he something less than omniscient? The traditional Christian teaching has held that God is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent, that he is all-knowing, all-powerful, and ever-present. I hope I've got everyone in our youth group right with me right now. I know that you all were learning about these attributes of God last semester. Later in his life, 
We see Jesus have power over disease and death. And we see him knowing with perfect precision the hearts and minds of people who haven't said anything out loud. Now, we are taught by Scripture to be sure that Jesus laid some of his godly attributes aside for a time, limiting himself to human form, for instance, declining to summon a legion of angels to his side on the cross, and so forth. But these are presented as active self-limitations of Jesus, not things that he's not wise enough or not strong enough to do. So what then, the thinking goes, can it mean that the boy Jesus grew in wisdom and in divine favor? Honestly, I don't think that this passage is trying to make claims about Jesus' divine attributes. That Jesus grew in wisdom can be an uncontroversial statement. He read the Torah. He learned from rabbis. He obeyed his parents. We know that our Lord could have sent a fully formed adult Jesus into the world, but he didn't. His son, his own incarnation, came as one of us and as such grew in wisdom and in years, just like we do. This verse is much more a statement about the fullness of Jesus' humanity than it is some undercutting of his divinity. And what's more interesting to me by far about this little section than Luke's exact phrasing here is the length of time he's covering with just this one sentence. It's like 20 years. He's kind of doing a yada, yada, yada. But he's doing it about the life of Jesus Christ. Luke, it seems clear, has a different focal point in mind. He's in a hurry to get to Jesus's ministry and then finally to his death and resurrection. I saw someone wrote online last week that he noticed as he was around his evangelical relatives for the holidays that, quote, evangelicals have a fixation on Jesus's death. That, for instance, at Christmas, when we celebrate the incarnation, we always make sure to say that Jesus came to die. Now, you may hesitate to identify as an evangelical, probably because of other people who are identified as evangelicals, either to your right or to your left. I don't care at all about quote-unquote evangelicalism per se. The term has come to mean so many different things to so many different people that it basically has no meaning at all. But even though I don't care about evangelicalism, I do care about the euangelion, the gospel, which is all evangelical originally meant. Someone who was all about the gospel. And maybe, yes, I could be accused of having a fixation on Jesus' death. But to me, as long as you're sure to include the resurrection, to me, a focus on the cross and empty tomb is a feature not a bug. It's not the problem with evangelicalism. It's what's good about evangelicalism. A laser focus on the gospel. Jesus did come to die for us and to be raised again for our justification. That's not evangelical as though that's some narrow category. That's Christianity. I saw this in evidence 
on the signboard outside a decidedly not evangelical as popularly defined Missouri Synod Lutheran Church just this week. Quote, you are the reason for the season, it said. Jesus was born to die for you. And to that I say, amen. That's how the Apostle Paul defines the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, he writes, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. Now don't get me wrong, and don't get Paul wrong either. We celebrate the implications of the incarnation of the miracles, of the teaching, and every other thing about Jesus. We dare not neglect them. But the cross and the empty tomb stand at the very center of everything we do, giving content and meaning to the good news we preach. They are our fixation because they are the gospel fixation. And by the way, when I say they are the gospel fixation, I'm not just talking about the center point of the good news, although that's true too, and we'll get there in a minute. I'm talking about the fixation of the gospel writers. Not a single gospeler or evangelist or even evangelical felt it necessary to give us a rundown of Jesus' exploits as a young man. I found an article online this week in which the writer wondered about Jesus' youth. Quote, Did he plainly outpace his peers in learning? Did his sinlessness infuriate fallen siblings? How skilled was he as a worker? Was his carpentry perfect? Or did it make good sense around town when he transitioned into public ministry? I love, that is an idea that I find hilarious. Thank God Jesus is becoming a preacher because that birdhouse he made me is terrible. <laughs> and it's not just the early years of Jesus' time on earth that seemingly get short shrift. Fully half the Gospels describe just the last week of his life. The Gospel writers had ready contact with Jesus' birth family, including and most especially his mother. And yet they chose to include almost nothing about the first 30 or so years, by far the majority of his life. All we have is, why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? These writers either were themselves disciples, like Matthew and John, or had direct access to disciples like Mark and Luke, men who had been with Jesus for his entire three-year ministry, and yet they focused intently, not just on those three years, but even more on the last seven days of his life. The Gospels are fixated right where the good news is centered, on the cross and resurrection of Christ. His death for our sins. His resurrection for our justification. At the end of his gospel, John, 
who you'll remember used exactly zero ink, not one drop on the first 30 years of Jesus's life, explained his intentions. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did, he wrote. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And a few chapters earlier, immediately after describing the resurrection and Jesus' presentation of himself and his wounds to Thomas, John writes, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John is speaking for all the gospel writers here, all the evangelists. They wrote so that you might believe the gospel. They wrote so that you might be saved. So back to Luke chapter 2. And the boy Jesus interacting with his parents. Why does Luke include this little story? Why, when he's ready to jump over 25 years with just a couple of sentences, do we read about this moment? Why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? I think that Luke shares these words because they are one more opportunity for him as he writes his story of Jesus' life with the same intention as John, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. These words are one more opportunity for Luke to proclaim the gospel. Jesus' parents should have known that he must be in his father's house. After all, he came to earth to be about his father's business the redemption of the world. And he accomplishes that mission on the cross and through the empty tomb, being crucified and rising again to save sinners. Jesus did many things during his earthly life. We study them, celebrate them, and let them shape us. But they are all Even the seemingly incidental ones, even this one that happened on some random day when Jesus was a little boy, they are all pointing to and culminating in those three days in Jerusalem. Those three days of first importance. Christ dying for your sins in accordance with the scriptures. His burial and his resurrection on the third day. All this he did for you. Believe it and have life in his name. Amen.